Hi, this is Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for jumping into our podcast. Over the next three months, our new series is called Lineage, and we're going to walk through major characters of the Old Testament from Abraham all the way to Daniel and understand the movement of the nation of Israel. This is important because it's part of our lineage. Our lineage isn't just made up of our ethnic or national identity, but as Christians, it's primarily this Old Testament story. Abraham is the father of our faith. And in Ephesians, we learn that God is making one people, Jewish and Gentiles, into the story of lineage, of how God has called a people to himself. So I hope that as you read the Old Testament, it wouldn't just be stories of dead old Jewish guys, but you would look at it as your own ancestry, as part of your story and the story that we're continuing. Hope you enjoy our new series. All right, let's get into our message uh, this morning. We come to our study of lineage and we want to talk about the character Joshua. Now, in order to do that, we need to uh, go to the book by the same name, uh, Joshua chapter 3, and we want to look at God's word this morning. Now, the book of Joshua is all about living in a literal geographic land called Canaan. Here, Joshua and the Israelites were commanded by the Lord to enter it, to conquer it, to distribute it among the 12 tribes, and then to prosper in it. They were to live out the blessings that God had promised them in the land of Canaan. The only problem was that the land was already occupied. If we could show a map of Canaan, now I know you can't read all of the details in it, but I just want you to see the map. And I want you to know that it was inhabited by 35 city-states. Can you imagine? 35 city-states resided in that area. There were the Moabites the Ammonites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites, the Hivites, the Hittites. Every ite that you could possibly imagine lived in this area. Not only that, but they also had the Philistine kingdom as well. Now, because of all of these people, they all had a formidable uh, military presence. They were formidable. They had skilled warriors As a matter of fact, Israel, when they compared themselves to them, they said, they're like giants and we are like grasshoppers. Not only did they have skilled warriors, they also had superior weaponry. The Philistines had iron chariots. Now imagine, in in that Bronze Age, the Jews uh, had just come out of slavery and they had wandered in the wilderness. All they had was sticks and bronze weapons, but the Philistines had an advanced technology. They had iron chariots. Not only were they skilled warriors with superior weaponry, they also had strong walls. They had siege-proof fortifications. If you can imagine, Jericho was actually 40 feet wide. You could actually drive a team of chariots on the top of the fortifications. Now, all these made them a formidable military presence, But the greatest concern of the Israelites was if all of these Canaanites united, they could easily wipe out Israel. 
It's in this context that God raises up an individual. We talked about that a couple weeks ago, that God, when he wants to do something, always raises up an individual. And he raises up a man by the name of Joshua to lead them into the land of Canaan. Now, I want you to look with me at Joshua chapter 1. Okay, Joshua chapter 1. I know our text is 3, but just look at this with me. And we'll begin reading in verse 2. It says this, The Lord said to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all of these people get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I'm about to give them, to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot. As I promised Moses, your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river, the Euphrates, all the Hittite country, to the great sea on the west. No one will be able to stand up against you all the days of your life. As I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will never leave you or forsake you. Verse 6, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Now God says, Joshua, I've already given this land to you. I promised it to your forefathers. I'm promising it to you right now. I want you to march in and take Canaan. I guarantee that it will fall into your hands. You have to go in and appropriate what has already been promised to you. And then he tells him, I will be with you. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Only be strong and very courageous. Why does God tell Joshua that? Well, it's because Joshua is afraid. Now think about this. Moses is dead. Israel had followed Moses 40 years. And God's servant now is no longer there to miraculously lead them as he's done before. And I'm sure that Joshua felt insecurity as he thought, how will I ever fill Moses' shoes? Moses is dead and Canaan is dangerous. He's thinking, how will I ever defeat skilled warriors, superior weaponry, and strong walls with the bunch of ex-slaves that I have here that don't have any significant, sophisticated resources? Moses is dead, Canaan is dangerous, and the mission is difficult. 35 city-states trying to appropriate all of those areas, that's going to require all the energy and commitment we have, that's an impossible, if not overwhelming, task for us. So here in the book of Joshua is all about Israel's miraculous victory in Canaan. Now you might say, well, that's a great history lesson, Dave, and I know you like history, but what does that have to do with me? Well, in the New Testament, God takes the literal conquering of this land called Canaan and he uses it figuratively for us as Christians. The New Testament sees Israel's conquering of Canaan as a symbol. It symbolizes the Christian's victory in conquering life. The book of Joshua is a picture of the Christian life. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. So the New Testament tells us that if we are in Christ, we have been given every spiritual blessing. Did you know that God promises every spiritual blessing to us as Christians? 
Because of Jesus, our Messiah, we have every spiritual blessing at our disposal. Let me share with you seven of them. And I want you to take a look at them right now. Number one, we are delivered from the power of sin. You know, at one time, we were in bondage to sin. But because of Jesus Christ, he has set us free from that bondage. Now we have victory in our lives. As a matter of fact, we looked about two, three weeks ago at temptations, and we said that there's no temptation that can take you except that God will provide a way of escape. We have been given that blessing of being delivered from the power of sin, death, and hell. Not only that, number two, we have the privilege of direct access to God. At one time, we were foreigners and enemies of God, but because of Christ, we now have intimacy. We can actually call him Abba, which actually means daddy or dad. We have intimacy. The third is that we can know the word and the will of God. It says that non-Christians cannot receive the things of God. It's foolishness to them because they are spiritually discerned. But we, who have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, that truth teller is able to take us into the word where we can understand the will of God for our lives. That's a blessing. Another one, we're controlled by the Holy Spirit. Where God, the Holy Spirit, guides us, he always provides for us, right? God always works in accordance with his will, and we are controlled by the Holy Spirit in our lives. Not only that, but we have the ability to produce spiritual fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. All those things that are pleasing to God is what we emanate because of what Christ has done for us. Not only that, number six, the power to transform this world. We have that kind of power. Jesus gave us that great commission, go and make disciples of all nations. And here we see the Holy Spirit's work in uh, saving the world. And we have uh, the power to be able to be a part of that and affect this world for here and for eternity. Not only that, we also live life eternally in heaven. That promise of eternity with the Creator is ours. <clears throat> that gives us security, doesn't it? It gives us a life insurance that we will live forever and forever and forever with Him. This is what it means to live in Canaan's land. Entering Canaan is a picture of living out those blessings that God has purposed and promised for us. You see, God's will is for His people to cross over the Jordan River in His power. And our responsibility is to conquer Canaan by living out those blessings that God guarantees for us in his Messiah, Jesus. Now, what is the problem? And there is a problem. <clears throat> it's the same problem that Joshua and the Israelites had. It's fear. It's the fear of the giants and battles and fortresses and obstacles that we come face to face with as we live in Canaan's land. It's the fear that can overwhelm us and keep us from the victory and blessings of the Christian life. And so in Joshua chapter 3, Joshua and the Israelites are about to cross the Jordan River and enter into that promised land, Canaan. And so what we want to do is we want to look at three principles that will help them overcome these overwhelming fears. And by the way, these are the same three principles that will assist us in conquering fear and living out a lifestyle of faith. Are you excited to delve into this with me? I, I hope you are. Let's look at the first principle. 
The first principle is we have to forsake the wilderness. In order for us to conquer fear and live out a lifestyle of faith, the first principle is we have to forsake the wilderness. Now you might say, well, what is the wilderness? In Numbers chapter 13 and 14, okay, this is a few books back uh, in the Bible, we see that uh, in Numbers 13 and 14, 40 years earlier, Moses sent 12 spies to survey Canaan. They were going to take Canaan, and they wanted to take a look at it, survey the land, and these 12 spies came back and reported, this is indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. That was a euphemism to say this was a productive, prosperous land. But 10 of the spies said it's impossible to take the land. The Canaanites are too great. We can't win this battle. But two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, gave a different report. They said, sure, the Canaanites are great. They're powerful. But God guarantees our success. Let's trust God and let's take the land, just as he commanded us. Well, the Israelites listened to not Joshua and Caleb. They listened to the ten spies. And because of the fear and unbelief that they had, they disobeyed God, and they missed out on a tremendous opportunity. I want you to look in Numbers chapter 14. Uh, would, you, would you put it up, please, for me? Numbers chapter 14. I want you to see what's said here. It says, as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. He's talking about uh, the Israelites who have now disobeyed God, and now, you know, they are because of fear and unbelief, uh, they're missing out on that opportunity. He says, in this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, 20 years old or more, who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with a lifted hand to make your home, except Caleb and Joshua. Verse 33, your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the wilderness. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins. Wow, that's powerful. God punished Israel for their fear unbelief, and disobedience. And their sentence was to wander the wilderness aimlessly until all of the first generation had died off, which took 40 years. Now notice, what was supposed to take 40 days lasted 40 years because of fear, unbelief, and disobedience. That is the wilderness. And now we come to our text in Joshua chapter 3 right? This is now the second generation. These are the children of the parents who died in the wilderness, and they witnessed the aimless wandering of that wilderness experience. And do you know what? They despised and detested and abhorred and hated the wilderness. This generation was weary of wandering the wilderness. They were tired of the heat waves, of the dryness, of the chapped skin, of the parched lips. They were tired of moving around like nomads without a home. They knew Canaan's blessings were promised to them, and they surely did not want to fall into the same mistake that their parents had succumbed to by fearing the land. Now, what, do I want to, what point do I want to make? What is the wilderness for the Christian? Well, we are saved out of Egypt. The Bible says that we've been freed from bondage. 
And we know the blessings that God guarantees for us in Canaan, but because of fear, the fear of hardships and obstacles and trials and persecution, because of the fear of missing out, we resign to wander a wilderness of misery and defeat. You know, fear can lead to unbelief. Unbelief can lead to disobedience, and disobedience definitely can lead to defeat. I don't know if you know that I've talked to so many people, I've counseled so many who have had this particular problem of being in the wilderness. And you know what they tell me? Almost every person tells me, I feel so miserable. I remember when I came to know the Lord. I remember when I was so excited to follow after him, to pray, to read scripture, to, to evangelize, to, to do works uh, for the Lord. I remember being very close to Jesus, but now it's like I've just kind of sat down and quit. I'm not running the race. I'm just kind of sitting on the sidelines. And you know what they tell me? They always tell me, I feel so miserable because I know where I, I'm supposed to be, but I'm not there. I'm over here. And you know what I always tell them? I always tell them, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. You know why? Because God loves you enough not to let you feel comfortable in the wilderness. The wilderness is a curse. We're not meant to live in the wilderness. Yet how many Christians are there because they won't, they won't continue to persevere in their faith? God does not want any of his people sitting in the sidelines, waiting in the wilderness. The solution is to forsake the wilderness. Our desire to live in the blessings that God promises us has to overpower our fear of the problems and obstacles and trials and persecutions that we will face living out our faith. And how many of us when it comes down to it, we're in a wilderness because we're afraid. We're afraid of making commitments, of living out what God wants us to. And just like the second generation, we need to be weary of wandering aimlessly in this cursed, spiritual, defeated desert. We need to know that there are spiritual blessings awaiting the Christian who's wholly committed to God. Sure, there may come trials. Sure, we may be persecuted. We may miss out on things that we think, you know, is a big deal. But in the end, God has a beautiful, victorious life that he wants us to live. So the first principle is forsake the wilderness. The second principle, if we can put that this up, is we have to follow the marching orders. We have to follow the marching orders. Now, let me give you some background. There are about a million Jews camped at the east bank of the Jordan River waiting to cross over. And biblical scholars are differ about how many, but it was it, it's pretty much a, close to a million people, give or take. And here in verse 15, chapter 3 and verse 15, it says, Now the Jordan is at flood stage all during harvest. Now think about this. Here's the background. It's the time of year when the Jordan River floods its banks. It's flood season. It's the highest the water will be all year. It's the most dangerous time of the year, okay? Now keep that in mind, and let's read chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Could you put it up? Early in the morning... Joshua and all the Israelites set out from Shittim and went to the Jordan where they camped before crossing over. 
And after three days, the officers went throughout the camp, giving orders to the people. When you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God and the priests who are Levites carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Now, here's the question I have. Why did God have Israel come to the Jordan River at the worst possible time of the year, at flood season? I mean, was God absent-minded? Like, oh, I forgot it was flood season, right? Was he a, a, a bad administrator? Oh, you know, I should have set this up better. And why did God have Israel camp out at the Jordan for three days? Hey, how many of you have gone whitewater rafting before? Now, I remember my first time whitewater rafting. Can you put up the, the slide? Uh, this was my first time whitewater rafting, and it was down the Kern River. And uh, I remember reading the brochures and seeing the brochures of all these people having a good time, splashing each other, and just really, really having the time of their life. And so I decided to take my team, and that was like 20-some years ago, uh, I, I decided to take my um, <clears throat> college uh, leadership team uh, to go whitewater rafting. And I thought it would be fun and enjoyable. I remember when we got there, uh, they had to sit on the ground, and the first thing they told us about was that the, the death toll was 253 people had died uh, trying to whitewater raft down the Kern River. And I remember thinking, oh my gosh, what is going on? And I remember they told us, if you don't listen to us, you could die. And right then and there, I was thinking, did I, did I make a mistake bringing everybody out here? But I remember they continued to talk about uh, what white water was. Uh, when the currents hit the rocks at a certain speed, it makes that white water. And they told us that there are certain classes of white water that we were going to experience. And it goes from class one to class six. So class one, of course, is the easiest and then it gets harder, two, three, four. And then when you get to class five, you can't be on one of those uh, until you have a certain you know, uh, training. And then you have to actually go through the training process. And that takes about a day. And so you can't do that. But then if you hit a class six and you accidentally go into a class six, then give up. You're going to die. Basically, that was it. And I remember listening to all this stuff and thinking to, my, thinking to myself, you know, what did I get our leadership team into? Well, I remember they had different names for the classes of Whitewater, right? Uh, Easy Street or The Widowmaker or Eat Rocks and Die, you know? Those were the different ones. And I remember as we were going down, all of us were a little afraid, but our guide, who was kind of a strong guy, but he was okay, he actually told us, hey, Easy Street's coming, and he told us all to jump out. And I remember jumping out, and they, they said this was one of the easier ones, and I remember just being carried by the currents. And it just freaked me out. It was cold. I was being rushed through this current. This is a class two, is easy street. And just thinking to myself, oh my gosh, I got to get back on the boat. And I couldn't. I couldn't swim back to it, right? And my wife actually tells me she'll never go whitewater rafting again because of that experience of jumping into the water. And she said she almost drowned, which I'm sorry, honey. She, she still blames me for not saving her. But she was way back there. And I was, uh, I was going through troubles of my own. But she'll never do whitewater rafting again. But I remember when we finally all got back on the boat, we kept going, and it started getting more fun, right? We hit a class three. Oh, hey, here it goes, Widowmaker, right? A class four, oh, eat rocks and die. I remember we were having so much fun, and then all of a sudden, as we're going through this, I remember our guide said, go to shore. And so we all went to shore, and he says, now pick up this raft and walk up this hill with me. Now, the raft is really, really heavy, 
And we were all thinking to ourselves, why in the world? I mean, we're having, we're having fun. We're just getting into it. Why are you having us walk up this hill? And I remember he didn't give us any explanation. He just told us to keep walking. And so as we walked up this hill, carrying this huge raft, all of a sudden we heard, I can't do the, the sound effects really well, but he started going, and I remember as we came up that hill, we looked down, and I remember our guide said, that's the reason why. I don't want you to have to ride prison love. And that's what they called it. I'm, I'm sorry if, you know, if it's a little bit um, uh, off color, but he said that's prison love right there. And I remember we looked at a class five. It was a class five, and we saw how violent it was. And all of us, our mouths just dropped, and we thought to ourselves, we're so glad that we're not riding prison love because you don't want any part of prison love, you know? And I remember going through here. Now, let me share with you, That's exactly how Israel felt as they were ready to cross the Jordan River at the worst possible time of the year. This was not a class five. This was not a class six. It was a class 100. Here's the question. Why was Israel at a flooded Jordan for three days at the worst possible time to try to cross that river? The answer is God was showing Israel their inadequacy. He wanted them to meditate on the sheer impossibility of their situation. I'm sure as they looked at that flooded Jordan, I'm sure as they strategized how they would cross, they came to the consensus, we're all going to die. There's no possible way that we can cross this. And as they camped out and they heard that current, they heard the roar of that river, I'm sure they were thinking to themselves, There is no possible way. They were in a position where they had to be completely dependent. And let me ask you, or let me say this, that this year God may camp you at an overwhelming flood. And you're going to see your inadequacy. But the Lord will expect you to march forward in faith despite the impossibility. My question for you is, will you obey The beauty of this story is that when God's servants stepped into that flooded Jordan, when they obeyed and got their feet wet, that's when the miracle happened. That's when the river parted and all of them crossed over the Jordan River. Here's the important point I want you to get. There is a misconception today that living out the blessings of Canaan is supposed to be easy. It's supposed to be almost effortless. And that is why so many Christians are stunned when the Christian life isn't as easy as they expected it to be. And the truth is that God never promised us an easy existence. When Joshua and the Israelites marched into Canaan, what did they do? They had to fight battle after battle. They had to take fortress after fortress. They had to uh, uh, engage everything in order to win. Giants and armies and walls don't just disappear. And that's what we have to understand. You know, in the beginning of this adventure, God had told them that this would be a process. Did you know that? Uh, Put up Exodus chapter 23, would you? In Exodus chapter 3, even in the beginning, before they went into Canaan, this is what was told to them. God says this in verse 29, but I will not drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and wild beasts multiply against you. 
Little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possessed the land. What did God tell Israel? He reminded them, even from the beginning, he said, this is going to be a process. It's going to be done little by little. You will march step by step into Canaan. You will conquer city-state after city-state. You will constantly fight and battle. But here's my promise to you. In the process, you will increase and possess the land. That's a powerful principle. Hey, the Christian life is not supposed to be easy. It's a process of little by little and step by step. But as we obediently follow God's marching orders, God will allow it allow you to increase and possess the land. Christian, you want to live a lifestyle of faith that pleases God. I know you do. You long to live out the blessings of the Christian life. But in order to see victory, you have to keep following God's marching orders. You have to keep fighting temptations, fighting tribulations, fighting persecutions. You have to keep advancing one foot in front of the other. And as we engage all the floods and fortresses and foes, we will see God's power and glory in the midst of our march. Can I get an amen? Amen. The second principle we want, the th- sorry, the third principle we want to look at is we want to look at the fact that we have to focus on our deliverer. We have to focus on our deliverer. Now, what is the focal point of this chapter? It may surprise you. Let's look in uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 5 through 11. Let's look at it. Verse 5, it says, And Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant, pass on ahead of the people. So they took it and went ahead of them. Verse 7, and the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the eyes of all Israel, so that they may know that I am with you as I was with Moses. Tell the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant, when you reach the edge of the Jordan's waters, go and stand in the river. Now listen to verse 9. And Joshua said to all the Israelites, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. Verse 10, this is how you will know that the living God is among you and that he will certainly drive out from before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Perizzites, Girgashites, Amorites, and Jebusites. Verse 11, see the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth. Let me repeat that. How will you know that the living God is among you and that he's going to give you success in Canaan? Here's the focal point. The Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of all the earth will go into the Jordan ahead of you. The focal point of this miracle is the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant is the focus of this entire chapter. Now you might ask me, well, what is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, in the Old Testament, the Ark manifested that God dwelt with his people. That was what the ark symbolized. It manifested that God dwelt with his people. Now, the Old Testament picture foreshadows always a New Testament reality. We've studied this before, right? Where the New Testament, the ark symbolizes something. It symbolizes the reality that is found in Jesus. In John chapter 1 and verse 1, we know this passage. It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Who's the word? It was Jesus. Now, in that same chapter, verse 13, it says, And the Word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. You see, Jesus is the ark that shows that God dwells with his people. Remember, the focal point of the entire Bible, the Old and New Testaments, is Jesus. He is the fulfillment of all the pictures and objects and symbols. And so Jesus is the ark of God's covenant. Let's look in verse 3 and 4, now that you have that in the back of your head. Let's look at it. And he gave orders to the people, when you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God and the Levitical priest carrying it, you are to move out from your positions and follow it. Then you will know which way to go since you have never been this way before. But keep a distance of about 2,000 cubits between you and the ark. Do not go near it. Now, here's the question. Why 2,000 cubits? That's about a mile, okay? A little less than a mile. Why was the ark a little less than a mile ahead of the Jews? It was because it was so, excuse me, every person could see the ark go before them. It was so that every child could look up and see the ark uh, a little more than a mile ahead. It was so that every elderly person who was, who was laying on a, 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 a movable bed could look up and see the ark go ahead of them. Joshua says that the sign that you will know that Canaan is going to be successful is that you will see the ark go ahead of you into that flooded Jordan River. You see, the ark was a tangible reminder that God will fulfill the victory. And when that ark went in, when God's servants got their feet wet, the Jordan River miraculously parted. You see, Israel's responsibility was to focus on the ark and to gain courage and confidence for their march into Canaan. Their job wasn't to believe in themselves or to rely on themselves. The Jordan River was too great. The Canaanites were too powerful. Their job was to focus on the ark. Now, here's where I'm going to bring it home to us. The New Testament reality is that Jesus is the ark. And focusing on Jesus as our Messiah is crucial to our success as Christians. It's not in our talents or abilities or knowledge or strength or resources or ingenuity that we can rely on. It's focusing on Jesus in our lives. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 says, Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside the weights and the sins that so easily beset us, and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. And then in verse 2 it says, Looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. When we look to Jesus, when we focus on Jesus, we will have success. Now, how do we focus on Jesus? And this is where I close my message. You know, tomorrow our nation is going to celebrate President's Day. And many of us, we are going to celebrate Abraham Lincoln's birthday. Now, I dare say everyone here knows the greatest president of the United States. Do we have his picture up, right? Many of us know who Abraham Lincoln is. But many of you probably didn't know that much of his life was characterized by failure. I want us to look at Lincoln's resume from history. Okay, Lincoln opened his business in 1830, and he went out of business in 1831. That sounds like a joke, doesn't it? But that happened. Lincoln went to the Battle of Black Hawk as a captain, and he came back from the same battle as a private. He was demoted. Lincoln tried his hand as a lawyer in Springfield, Illinois, but everyone said that he was impractical and unpolished, and so his law firm soon collapsed. He was defeated in his first campaign for legislature in 1832. 
His sweetheart died in 1835 and he responded with a nervous breakdown. He was defeated when he ran for speaker in 1838. He was defeated when he ran for elector in 1840. He was defeated when he ran for Congress in 1843. He finally won Congress, but was soundly defeated in 1848. He was defeated in his application as commissioner for the General Land Office. He was defeated in his run for Senate in 1850. He was defeated in his bid for president in 1856. He was defeated in the senatorial election of 1858. Everything he tried for, he failed until 1860. And in 1860, he finally became the president of the United States. But it was during the worst time in American history, the Civil War. We look and we see that during his uh, presidency, he was vilified and so unpopular by many. Yet today, we consider him our greatest president. When you look at Abraham Lincoln's life, this begs the question, and you need to ask yourself, how in the world did he conquer all of his fears? How did he prevail over all those obstacles? How did he keep going despite failures and rejections and tribulations? Can I share with you that Abraham Lincoln was a devout Christian? And historians say that if you were to look into his personal Bible that he kept all his life, and you were to turn to the uh, most worn-out page, where there were actual tear stains, it was so worn out, and where he would go to again and again, you would find one passage, that worn-out part, Psalms 34 and verse 4. Do you know what it says? Psalm 34 and verse 4 says this, I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all my fears. Amen? Focusing on Jesus, seeking him, looking to him, trusting him every day of your life, and being in close relationship with him will keep you from those fears that can paralyze us in our Christian life. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. And oh, as we study it, how it speaks to our souls. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us again about living the life that you intended us to live. Lord, allow us by faith to live a lifestyle that would be pleasing to you. We pray this and all God's people said, amen.